Welcome to Clean Tech Talk with Important Media, where we discuss the latest news in clean cars, clean energy, and clean technology. I'm Chris DeMauro, editor of Gas2.org. And I'm Zachary Shahan, director of cleantechnica.com and evobsession.com. And I'm Ian Wright, uh, president of Wrightspeed. Yeah, today we have a uh, very special guest with us. And, uh, you know, Ian was uh, gracious enough to come on with us for our first interview ever and uh, answer some questions we have about uh, his company, Right Speed, and what, what he thinks the future of electrification is. So um, why don't we just jump right in here and, you know, one of the, uh, perhaps uh, where we should start is uh, you joined uh, Tesla Motors actually early on. You were one of the first people on board, but then you left after uh, a little while. Uh, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I guess I wanted to go do my own thing. Um, we do quite a few things differently than Tesla. Um, you know, we don't build electric cars. We build powertrains. Uh, they're range extended um, electric powertrains and we use turbine engines for the range extender and we're focused on the high power, high fuel consumption um, parts of the market and you know technically we do different things with high power batteries and individual motors per drive wheel and the control of that and you know most notably of course we do trucks and not cars. Yeah we have, uh, we have a lot of readers really pushing for electrification of trucks more. Um, what convinced you that electrification should begin with trucks instead of cars? Uh, it basically comes down to the economics if you do a payback calculation. I mean, this, this technology is not cheap. It's a lot more expensive than piston engines and transmissions. Uh, and so if you do a calculation on, well, what's the increased capital cost versus how long does it take you to save enough money in fuel and maintenance to get that capital cost back, um, and you run the spreadsheets on that and then you start plugging in all the variables about well, how much fuel do these vehicles burn and how much does it cost to maintain them per year, you pretty quickly get driven up into the trucks because they burn so much more fuel and they cost so much more to maintain. Yeah, I know, I, know, I know one reason that our readers push a lot for them is that there's huge potential for emissions reductions. Yeah, yes there, yes, there is. <laughs> uh, you know, it, there's a lot of different cars, but if you look at the cleanest of them, the PZEVs, um, you know, you drive those around in LA and you're actually cleaning up the air. Um, there's le less hydrocarbons in the exhaust than there is in the intake. Uh, it's really quite astonishing how clean these cars are now. So you can't really improve on that. You make those electric and you know, it doesn't make any difference. Um, oh, but, but, I, but I mean, they push for the electrification of trucks more because trucks use so much more fuel and create so much more emissions. So if you electrify them, yes, that, then that's you end up... Yes, trucks use so much more fuel. You know, for example, a little um, city car or a Prius might use something like 180 gallons a year, but a Class 8 garbage truck uses about 14,000 gallons a year and is running to a higher emissions level. I mean, they're certified to higher emissions than, than the cars are. So it's not only more fuel, but they're actually they're putting out more emissions per gallon of fuel as well. It sounds like your uh, right speed is very motivated by making financial sense out of uh, electrification. Um, is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's really important, not just, of course, for the success of the company, but if you want to deploy this technology widely, if you want to make a big difference, then it has to be taken up by a lot of people. And the best way for that to happen is that it makes compelling economic sense. <laughs> now, that actually leads us to uh, our next question. Now, I, 
what you're working with is more of a, a hybrid drive frame. Um, what do, do you think electric vehicles can ever really over overcome uh, the challenges like cost and charging time? Or, or do you think it, it's really going to be more of a hybrid setup? Well, okay, let's clear up some technology. So, mm -hmm. you know, these days, the hybrid means to almost everybody, hybrid means the Prius kind of architecture where there's a conventional powertrain and in parallel to that, there's batteries and electric motors. And that's been done in trucks as well as cars. And that's what, when people say hybrid, that's what they mean. That isn't what we do at all. So what we do is actually an, an electric vehicle, battery electric vehicle, you plug it in, you charge it. The only thing that drives the wheels are the electric motors. And, and then added to that is a range extender generator. So this is the architecture that's called a range extended EV. So we and, don't actually make hybrids, we make range extended EVs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's, there's a, there's, I'm sure you know all about the debate about plug-in hybrid versus extended range vehicles, you know, which terminology to use for different vehicles. Would, would you, are you saying that your trucks fit under the extended range electric vehicle category more than the plug-in hybrid category? Yes. Or, yes. yes. And, and I think the, the clearest way to think about this is, well, where did you start from? Or what's the pure expression of that technology? So our system, you can, you can leave out the turbine generator altogether, and it's a, it's a pure battery EV, right? That's what it is. Now, um, uh, at the other end of the scale, the hybrids, you can leave out the electric motor and battery, and what you have is a conventional powertrain. But if you leave out the conventional powertrain, you've got, you've got nothing, right? <laughs> So, so I would say a plug-in hybrid is one of those mild parallel hybrids, Prius-type architecture that simply had the battery pack expanded and a grid charger added to it. That's what a plug-in hybrid is. But a range-extended range EV is a battery EV that's had a generator added to it. And I've I think seen that's a, lot a really of, good explanation. Yeah, I've seen a lot of debates and explanations about the differences, and I think that's the clearest I've ever <laughs> ever heard or read. So that's that's really good. Uh, where did the idea for a plug for an extended range uh, electric truck come from? Oh, you just do the engineering. So if you let's start with a garbage truck, for example, you know they do two point eight miles per gallon. They do one hundred and thirty miles a day. Uh, that's a lot of energy. So if you want to make an electric garbage truck and you do all the engineering calculations, you wind up with a battery pack that's 400 to 500 kilowatt hours. And there isn't room for that to start with, and there isn't the weight capacity for that, and there isn't, the, you know, the, the capital cost of that is just utterly prohibitive. So then you say, you scratch your head and you say, well, what can I do about that? And the answer is, well, let's add a, let's add a turbine generator. And, and then, you know, that will give us the range that we need and without the huge battery pack. So we actually and, run a 78 kilowatt hour battery pack in, in garbage trucks. And the initial inspirations for getting into this field at all? Oh, so that came back from when we started Tesla. So there's a, a Caltech engineer down in Los Angeles called Al Caccioni, who's the, who worked on the prototype of the EV1 and then went out and started his own company called AC Propulsion. And he built some um, prototype very fast electric sports cars uh, called the T0 and it wasn't until I drove one of those uh, up on Skyline Boulevard where I live here in the Bay Area and just got out of that and said wow that was fun <laughs> <laughs> so that that was really what was the tipping point for me yeah I read another interview where you were um, mentioning that as being the, the tipping point for getting involved in Tesla yeah yeah, there's nothing like that experience to just sort of change your entire perception. Because I was, before that, 
I was like everybody else. So, you know, electric cars, they're golf carts, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I... Yeah, I was writing about them for a long time before I drove one. And uh, once I, I went to EVS uh, 27 in Barcelona, EV Symposium, and drove a bunch. And, uh, and I was like, whoa, this is what's going to sell electric cars. It's not the yeah. efficiency. It's not the emissions. Yeah. It's not anything. It's going to be the torque and the excellent you know, acceleration. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, what we, that's when we started Tesla. That was the thing. We, let's make something that's like that, only it's a much nicer car. And if I drove a, uh, the the dual motor Model S the other day for the first time. And, you know, those are really nice cars. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it, yeah. Um, you know, I, I would just like to go back uh, to one of the things you mentioned. Uh, one of the things I find the most compelling about Speed is that instead of using a conventional gas engine, you opted for the micro turbine. And from what yeah. I understand, that not only allows you to uh, run a bunch of different fuels, but it's also just more efficient. Can you talk a little bit about that to us? Actually, more efficient is, is the one thing it doesn't do. Okay. It's, it's actually very hard to get a turbine up to the same efficiency as a piston engine. Um, uh, so, so let's start with, well, what, what are the advantages of a turbine? So you've got to start with, okay, well, what problem are we trying to solve here? And it's, it's not an engine that's driving the wheels. It is a generator. And so what that means is that we're going to operate the thing at consistent high power, you know, constant load, constant RPM, and pretty high power. Actually, what we want to do is operate the engine, the generator engine, at its most efficient speed and load. So if you were going to do that with a piston engine, um, to start with, everyone would say, well, why don't you use a diesel engine? Okay. The problem with that is it's very difficult to meet the emission standards with a piston diesel engine in a generator drive cycle, in a generator duty cycle, because you're going to operate the thing at like you know, 75% RPM and 75% power um, for, for efficiency, and it won't meet the emission standards there. So everyone that's using <clears throat> a piston engine for a, for a range extender is actually using a gasoline piston engine because you can meet the emission standards for that. But now the problem is if you run a, a, a gasoline piston engine and you want max efficiency, then you've got to run wide open throttle so to avoid the pumping losses, and you want to run at about peak torque, so that's probably about 70% RPM. And the trouble with that is if you use a little car engine in that duty cycle, it'll only last 500 to 1,000 hours, and what we need is 5,000 to 10,000 hours in these, in these truck applications. So that doesn't work either. So you say, all right, well, there certainly are piston engine generators that will do 10,000 hours, no problem at all. Yes, there are, but they weigh 2,000 pounds. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the turbine to do the same job weighs 200 pounds. So right there is where you start. It's the same reason, essentially, that um, you don't find piston engines on 747s. In fact, any airplane now with more than six seats in it will be a turbine for the same reason. You can't. It's power-to-weight ratio versus durability. You want, and the engine we're using right now will actually run 40,000 hours at full power with no maintenance. I mean, that, you just cannot do that in a piston engine. Wow, that's tremendous. Yeah, so that's, that's thing one. And then thing two is, as you said, you can burn any fuel pretty much. And you can, in fact, set up these engines to literally run dual fuel. You can run a compressed natural gas tank and fuel injectors. And in parallel to that, you can have a diesel tank and a diesel fuel injector. And you can actually switch fuels on the fly with the engine running. 
Um, we're not doing that right now, but it's technically possible and we will do it at some point. And what that means, of course, is that you could set up a truck you know, with a big battery and you plug it in and charge it. You get your first X miles per day on grid energy and that's the cheapest that you'll ever do. And when you deplete the battery, then you start the turbine and you run natural gas because that's half the price of diesel. But if you run out of natural gas and there's nowhere to refuel because there aren't that many places to buy natural gas, that's okay. You just switch to diesel and you can keep driving. And then the thing most people don't realize uh, is that they're incredibly clean. So they're much, much cleaner than, than piston engines. And that's primarily because the combustion process is completely different. Uh, it's a continuous flame. It's not a, you know, intake, compression, ignition, power stroke, exhaust stroke. It's not that at all. It's a continuous flame, um, continuous flow of, of fuel and, and air. And it's an extremely lean burn. There's a lot of excess oxygen in the exhaust. So with a properly designed combustor, by the time you get to the exit of the combustor, you've burnt everything, all the particulates, all the hydrocarbons, all the CO, it's all burnt. And so you can run the things extremely clean. The one we're using now beats even the California emission standards by a factor of 10 for some emissions, by a factor of 3.5 for others, and it does that without any after-treatment. So it doesn't need a catalytic converter, doesn't need a particulate filter, doesn't need urea injection to, to just blow away the California emission standards. So that's something you just can't do with a piston engine. I think you just uh, I think you just went ahead and answered our next question, which was going to be uh, what uh, what sorts of cost or emissions reductions you, does this technology achieve? And from the sounds of it, I mean, emissions-wise, at least you're talking about some serious serious reductions from you know some of the most polluting vehicles on the road. Yeah, so here's a here's a novel concept that freaks people out. It's actually cleaner than a than an EV. And Please elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so EVs have to get their electricity from somewhere. And so if you look at the US national average, it's still forty eight percent coal. And so if you if you look at it nationally and say, okay, well if I'm gonna use the US national average uh, emissions from power plants per kilowatt hour then that's significantly worse than the emissions per kilowatt hour of our turbine engine. So it's actually cleaner to not plug this thing in and to just burn fuel if you're just talking about emissions. And if you're talking about the average, yeah. Well, you know, creating a startup is, of course, easy to do, right? So uh, <laughs> our, our next question was, what sorts of challenges have you had to overcome to get right speed off the ground? I'm sure it, I'm sure it wasn't all butterflies and roses. Yeah, well... You know, you know, critical to the success of something like this is putting the right team together. I mean, the engineering team has done you know, a truly outstanding job. If you look at how much intellectual property we've built and how, how um, innovative it is, how well it performs, and how little money it costs to actually do it compared to what you would expect. You know, if one of the big guys were doing this, you know, what we've done would cost them a billion dollars. We haven't spent anything like that. Um, so, so hiring is always a challenge, finding the right people, getting them here. We put a lot of effort into recruiting. You know, raising money is always a challenge as well, um, especially after the cylinders and so on. Um, and it became not trendy anymore on Sandhill Road to do clean tech things. And raising money is a challenge. You know, so, so our sales pitch for that is that this is just a really good business. Um, and it yeah, is. And yeah, go ahead. 
And using that, jumping back to the previous question, that we uh, do you have uh, some specific numbers on cost savings that you could share? Because that, that's the kind of thing that really, I think, uh, really convinces the, the engineers and the skeptics and the, and the people looking at the numbers. Yeah, so the clearest example is, you know, the Class 8 garbage trucks, and they're nice for a bunch of reasons, but one is uh, that they, they pretty much all do a pretty similar drive cycle. So you, get, you can use the average numbers, and it, it actually covers most of the fleet. Um, there's not a lot of diversity in how they use them. And so the average Class 8 garbage truck in the U.S. burns uh, $55,000 a year in fuel and up to $30,000 a year in maintenance, most of which is brakes. Some of them chew up a set of brakes on that Class 8 truck in three months. They're doing um, 130 miles a day on average at 2.8 miles per gallon, and they're doing 1,000 hard stops a day. And when they say hard stops, they're not kidding. Um, some of those guys, they're triggering the ABS on most of those stops. So they're really very, very hard on those trucks. Uh, so, you know, the $55,000 average a year in fuel, up to 30000 in maintenance, we can save about $35,000 a year in fuel in that truck and about $20,000 a year in maintenance. Wow. So that means that we can sell, you know, uh, at a reasonable price, a price that, that lets us succeed as a business and our customers get their money back in less than four years. And that's something that really scales. You know, when you're talking about big cities like Chicago, New York and stuff, you know, you start uh, deploying these kinds of vehicles en masse and you're talking about millions of dollars in savings annually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I, size of that market for us is about $2 billion just as, you know, is powertrain kits. I imagine the word gets around quickly too. I mean, those are kind of government agencies. You know, they share their experience and they, you know, they make big, big fleet orders or you know, batches of orders. So, well, I think most of the trucks are actually owned by companies like Waste Management and Republic uh -huh. Services and Recology and so on. Uh, they may be contracted to the cities, but the, the assets are actually owned by the by the companies. I see. I see. Um, and yeah, they seem to get them private, privatized. Yeah, uh, and they do talk to each other surprisingly, uh, uh, by a surprising amount. And so we are actually getting approached by a lot of those people. Um, one thing that you know we didn't really set out to do, but it's turning out to be quite a big deal for this particular application, is we can make those garbage trucks a lot quieter. Mm. Yeah. We can't do much about you know the smashing of the bottles as they throw them in the recycling. Uh -huh. uh, but if you if you do next time you're woken up in the morning when they pick up your garbage, listen carefully and see what make what is making most of the noise, and it's actually the engine. And so we can make garbage trucks a lot lot quieter than they are now. I can hear it in my head right now. <laughs> you mean not hear it? <laughs> I think that's going to be a big deal, and that's going to start sort of showing up as requirements when they go out to contract for these garbage pickup services. There'll be noise limits. Um, and probably the only way to meet them is with something like this. And I actually think that's a good, that's a nice transition to uh, one of the next questions I, I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, what, so one of the things we've seen over the past few years is, you know, some larger automakers and truck makers, they seem to be shying away from electrifying trucks. Like you had some companies like Navistar and International that kind of put out these, you know, hybrids that, you know, or plug-in hybrids that just didn't seem to really sell very well because they didn't seem to save customers enough money. Yeah. Um, yep. why, do you, why, why do you think like these major automakers seem to be shying away from 
electrifying all sorts of trucks, not just commercial, but any, you know, it seems to make a lot of sense. Like, you know, you, why do you think they're not doing it? Well, I think it's exactly the same story we saw in the cars. So, so back up a bit. The automotive industry is more than 100 years old, and it's, you know, they're big companies, and they're very conservative from all sorts of points of view, but particularly from an engineering point of view. And that's a good thing because you can sort of close your eyes and go and choose a new car, and it's going to be safe and it's going to be reliable and it's going to be efficient. They're all very good these days. I mean, that's primarily because they are very conservative about making radical changes in technology. They don't do that. They make incremental changes. So if you look back at, you know, it's, it's, well, it's well over a decade now that, you know, Toyota wanted to do something about this. So they did the Prius. And, and that's an incremental change on the existing technology. They added in parallel a small electric motor, small battery pack, and, well, let's try this out. And if it doesn't work properly, well, it's still got the conventional powertrain. It'll still get you home. It'll still work. Um, that was the approach they took, and it w worked very well for them. And they didn't really do anything radical about pure EVs until Tesla proved that there was a market for that. Yeah, right? I, I, I saw... Um... I think it was your former neighbor. I saw an hour-long presentation from him uh, explaining how how Tesla started up and whatnot. And it was interesting. Towards the end, he he said that after leaving Tesla, he went and um, he went and was consulting, you know, advising the large automakers about electrification. Yep. And he and he noted that you know in the in the pitch to investors, you guys were explaining, you know, that exactly what you just said. And when he went and started doing consulting, he found that actually it was a lot worse than you guys thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, well, let's not go there. But, but yeah, so <laughs> they, make, they make incremental changes and they didn't really jump on. You, know, you couldn't buy a Nissan Leaf or anything. In fact, Nissan used to say, no, we're never going to do anything about this. And then you got the Tesla Roadster and that got all this you know, public acclaim, people loved them and they're paying $100,000 for them and Tesla couldn't make them fast enough. Then the big automakers wake up and say, okay, well, yeah, let's jump on this bandwagon. And exactly the same thing is playing out in the trucks. So they all, you're right, they all tried the mild parallel hybrid, the kind of Prius architecture, doesn't save enough fuel to pay for itself in these trucks. So, you know, all the big fleets tried those and eh, that didn't really work, so they stopped. But it's a huge radical step to go to a range extended EV powertrain architecture instead of a conventional powertrain with you know parallel hybrid that's well, a huge step yeah we're not at the end yet but that's a good opportunity to say thank you for what you're doing it's a great service to the world so we we really appreciate that um but talking about cars so is your technology just like basically this is for trucks or is there a possibility possibility that down the road it could be scaled down to passenger cars. Oh, it, it can be. It can be now. Um, the passenger cars that, that we have interest in are all um, extremely high-performance cars where you need a lot of power and a lot of control. That's where we're getting interest. Um, I don't know if you know, but we have a U.S. patent on how we control tire slip. We use one motor per wheel, and we, we have quite a novel way of controlling um, the slip of those tires. So the net effect is you get hmm. better traction control, ABS, and your stability than you do with any of the conventional control systems. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of immediate interest in that is all around very high-performance cars. That turns out to be very useful in these trucks as well because we use very high-power regenerative braking, you know, up to 730 kilowatts in the garbage trucks, um, less than that in the medium-duty trucks. 
But if the truck is empty and you're driving on the ice and you're doing all the regen braking with the rear axle, then you've obviously got the potential for a nasty stability um, situation. You could lose control of the truck. But that's why we have this patented control system that, that doesn't let you lose control of the truck and we can run the high-power regen without a safety issue. So it, it, it certainly does work in passenger cars. We can scale it down to that today. And the reason that we haven't really gone there so much other than performance applications is because of the, the cost scaling issues. And this was a bit of an epiphany after I left Tesla that, um, yeah, you can do something like a Nissan Leaf. You can do something bigger like, you know, the Camry, the Tesla, whatever. You can do, you know, pickup trucks and vans. You can do you know, delivery trucks in the 14, 16,000 pound range. You can do 66,000 pound garbage trucks. If you look at the cost of the powertrain across that spectrum, yeah, it costs twice as much to do a delivery truck as it does a Nissan Leaf size of vehicle, but you save 10 times as much fuel. So the savings go up much faster than the cost, the incremental cost of the powertrain. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's definitely why our readers keep pushing for, for more focus on that, even more news on that, you know. Yeah, so you know, that, that means that what you should do is start with the garbage trucks and work down from there. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense to me. Um, yeah. One thing I want to ask is, uh, does this mean we may see a right-speed powered performance car sometime in the near future? Uh, no comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, you got him. <laughs> um, so why don't we uh, move on here? Um, let me ask you this. What do you think is going to be the tipping point for your vehicle electrification? Do you think it's going to be more battery prices coming down, fuel costs going up? Do you think maybe there's just going to be like one day like people are just going to wake up and be like, oh, I want an EV like I want a smartphone sort of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that last thing worked, has worked very well for Tesla. I mean, that's the main reason that people want them, because you know, it, it, it's cool people have them. It's fun. <laughs> the Toyota Camry of Palo Alto around here. Um, you know, nobody on Sandhill Road needs to driving a Tesla. Um, so, yeah, of course, it's, it's a combination of all of those things. If you want to really simplify it and say, well, what's the tipping point for family cars, little cars, that kind of thing, uh, $11 a gallon. Yeah, there's your, there's your sound bite. The tipping point, if the fuel price gets to $11 a gallon, then it's a no-brainer. They'll all be electric. Mm -hmm. um, so you say, well, okay, what if the batteries got a lot cheaper? Then, well, then it didn't need to be $11 a gallon. Maybe that would happen at you know, $8 or $9 a gallon, um, which you know is pretty close to what they're paying in Europe. But the trouble is that you know, people think, well, you know, they're electric. They'll follow Moore's law. But batteries don't follow Moore's law. And, you know, there's a lot of expensive raw materials and batteries. There's a huge capital investment in battery factories. So, uh, and those things don't scale. You know, it's the same amount of raw materials whether you're making one battery or you're making a million batteries. And the capital cost, um, you know, same thing. If you need to, to have 10 times the production, it needs 10 times the capital cost for the factory. So there's not a lot of hope for you know, big reductions in the cost of batteries. You shouldn't really plan for big reductions. I mean, it, it does go down and it will go down, um, but it's not, it's not radical, it's not tipping point stuff. So it, it's sort of clearer to think about what would the price of fuel need to be to make the tipping point, that's $11 a gallon. So 
you know, but some combination of, yes, cheaper batteries as we go ahead and increased cost of fuel as we go ahead and, you know, better vehicles, frankly. I mean, electric cars are fun to drive. You make them cool enough and there's a, there's a huge factor there that people will pay a premium for that. And that's working very well for Tesla right now. Do you, yeah, do I mean, you think the threshold for um, electrification of bigger trucks in terms of fuel prices might be lower? Because, you know, we've had like kind of low gas prices now these past few months and, you know, SUV sales started going up. Do you think um, it might be more like five to six dollars a gallon where we start seeing more uh, fleets using larger vehicles uh, oh, go down this go down this road? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't make that clearer. So um, when I talked about the scaling properties of the cost versus the fuel savings, you know, it's, it's economically compelling now at current fuel prices mm -hmm. in garbage trucks. It's completely compelling. Um, and if you look at the spectrum of, of vehicles, and, and the easiest way to think about it is how many gallons a year does this vehicle burn? And, you know, you've got to multiplex into that what's, how hard is the stop-go drive cycle. But just to keep it simple, how many gallons a year does the vehicle burn? Where is the cutoff point at current fuel prices for this to be economically viable? And that's about 4,000 gallons a year. That's, you know, what delivery trucks burn. Um, the pickup trucks are down in the 1,400 gallons a year, so that doesn't work. Cars, family cars, 600 gallons a year, that definitely doesn't work. Little city cars, 180 gallons a year, you know, it's, it's way off in the future. But right now, current fuel prices... Um, the, the, the point at which it makes sense is at about the 4,000 gallons a year. So that's medium-duty trucks and above. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you. I, I, I mean, we, we love what you're doing. We love your company. Uh, really interesting information you provided. So thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Do you have any final thoughts you're, that you would like to add? Mm, I think, you know... We're going to look back on this in 20 years and say, you know, there really was a radical transformation in, in what drives vehicles happening about now, sort of this period from when Tesla first released the Roadster through to sort of five years from now. It, it, it seems like it's taking a long time, but when we look back on it from 20 years in the future, we're going to say, wow, that was a, that was a huge transformation in a really short time. I, think, I don't think we could... Ask for a better way to end this uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> thank you again to uh, Ian Wright of Wright Speed for being our guest today. Uh, I'm Chris Tomorrow, editor of Gas2.org. And I'm Zachary Shahan. And, and Ian Wright from Wright Speed. Thanks again for joining us.